All right. Ian. Yes. What was your favorite part of the movie? What part were you like, this is the good part? All right. Also, spoiler alert. Don't skip ahead if you're if this is our cold open. But <laughs> maybe this is a bad cold open. <laughs> it could be it could be a bad cold open. It could <laughs> we be. Do spoilers. <laughs> oh, my favorite scene is the last scene when everyone dies. <laughs> I like the part when our main character suffers and then suddenly explodes. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Do you, know you want to do a different question? <laughs> no, we're gonna we're just gonna stick with that and move on. Um So, if we go by the rule that the hero is undone by his fatal flaw, what is Heracles' flaw? Arrogance. Okay. Why? Because he literally refuses to look at all the signs that are being literally handed to him the entire play. Okay. Interesting. So he thinks he has control. But let's all remember. Sophocles wrote the oracle so that it was unconditional, meaning Heracles never had any choice, right? So does that make it more tragic or less tragic than if he has a choice? Less. Okay. Why? Because. Care to weigh in, Peter? Um, about which part? I think it's more tragic because if it's all just inevitable, then that means that the characters had no hope. They never had hope because they're all just like hopeless. They're all like pawns in this horrible, hopeless machine. Welcome, welcome to the Paths of Fear podcast, everybody. My name is Marshall Jones. And I'm Ian. And you're listening to the podcast where we explore horror movies and watch them weekly with our viewers and get their take on it as well. Yeah. And today we'll be having a look at Hereditary, a horror film made recently in 2018. Written and directed by Ari Aster. The same guy who did Midsummer. Yeah. I could, uh, there was one scene, the first kind of like, like kind of scary scene we see where I was like, this is, this is the same guy who did Midsummer. I didn't know his name, but I was like, this mm-hmm. is the same guy because, uh, they both have such a bright color palette for being a horror movie. Uh, hmm, interesting. And there's this one scary scene where I was like, yep, yeah, that's the same. Oh, that's cool. I have to talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to give a teaser for this movie? Yeah, let's hear your teasing, Ian. Okay. Annie Graham lives in Utah with her family, her husband Steve, their 16-year-old son Peter, and their somewhat strange 13-year-old daughter Charlie. Annie's secretive and perhaps mentally unwell mother, Ellen Lee, has just died. But greater tragedy has yet to strike this family. And Annie may have to start questioning that around her, and that inside her own head, out of what this family will experience. The question lingers. What is real? What is supernatural? What is hereditary? Oh my god, did you end it with the name of the movie? Holy crap. Yeah, I'm just that good. You know, I was actually, I was thinking, like, how can you, how can you fit hereditary? Like, it's such a weird title, and honestly, I don't like the title much. So, uh... Interesting. I was, it was just strange. But yeah, overall, Ian, what did you rate this movie? I gave this movie a nine out of ten. Hot damn, dude! I am uh, looking at our audience's stuff too. I am just way out of the loop here, dude, because I gave this movie a six point five. 
<laughs> oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, so what's our what's our average there? Usually it's so uh, easy to math it out. Six point five and nine. Seven point seven five is our average. Which go. is lo- no viewer, no none of our none of our audience gave it less than an eight. So our score is automatically less than the audience's. <laughs> so uh, let me let me calculate theirs real quick. Uh, they got sixteen plus nine plus forty, which is what sixty five divided by seven. It's a high one. Yeah, they gave it a nine point three. Hot dang. <laughs> there you go, man. I mean, here I am with my well, six point five. It's going to be interesting to talk about. Uh, you know, so, so this podcast um, episode doesn't exist, but remember we did the the Babadook as like our first test run? I remember we talked about it, yeah, our demo podcast. And similarly, we also had very different scores. I gave it a very high one. You gave it a, you know, a decent one, but not very good. I think um, we did nine and seven, right? I was a seven, you were a nine? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, but... I, your score might have been lower, I forget, but um, I think it might have been, it might be for similar reasons, I feel, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we're going to uh, find out. Just in terms of the kind of horror that this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Ian, hit me, with a, hit me with a sweet summary. Please summarize this so hard because you lost me at a few points. So you got to hit me. With <laughs> yes. All right, I will try to summarize the whole thing. I can't include everything, otherwise it would be such a long summary. But I tried my best, so let's get into it. Annie Graham, a designer of miniatures, lives in Utah with her husband Steve, their 16-year-old son Peter, and their reserved 13-year-old daughter Charlie. At the funeral of her mother, Ellen Lee, Annie delivers a eulogy, explaining their fraught relationship and her mother's extremely private and secretive life. While Ellen's death incurs some sadness, it seems the only one who truly misses Ellen is her granddaughter Charlie since Charlie was apparently Ellen's favorite, even though she wished Charlie had been born a boy. It's also at this point we learn that Charlie has a nut allergy, as her parents make sure the chocolate she's eating after the funeral is nut-free. A week later, Annie thinks she sees an apparition of Ellen in the corner of her workshop. Meanwhile, Steve is informed that Ellen's grave has been desecrated, but he decides not to tell Annie to spare her any additional grief. Annie starts attending a support group for those with recently deceased loved ones, but she keeps secret from her husband Steve, telling him that she is going out for the movies instead. At the support group, Anna reveals that the rest of her family suffered from mental illness that resulted in all of their deaths. She also reveals that while Ellen was kept away from Peter while he was being brought up, she was a significant figure in raising Charlie, as Annie had felt bad for keeping her out of Peter's life. After school, Peter wants to go to a party that a friend told him about, and he asks Annie for the car, telling her that it's a low-key school barbecue. Annie asks him to see if Charlie wants to go, but Charlie's outside wandering around the property. Once Annie finds Charlie, she forces her to go, despite her complete lack of interest. When at the party, Peter wants to pursue his school crush, and so he leaves Charlie unsupervised, despite her reluctance, and tells her to eat some cake. Unbeknownst to Peter, the cake contains nuts, and after Charlie eats it, she begins suffering from anaphylactic shock. As soon as Peter realizes what's happening, he picks Charlie up, rushes to the car, and starts driving as fast as he can to the hospital. While Peter is driving, Charlie leans out of the window for air, and when he swerves to avoid a dead deer, she is suddenly decapitated by a telephone pole. 
Peter stops the car and sits there in shock, in disbelief, and in grief. He wants to ask Charlie if she's okay, but he knows the answer. Peter turns the car around and drives home, with Charlie's headless corpse in the car. At home and still in shock, he enters the house and lies awake in bed. The family grieves following Charlie's funeral, and tensions between Annie and Peter are significantly heightened. Peter is plagued by Charlie's presence around the house and seems to feel a numbing sense of guilt for the incident. Annie is befriended by a support group member, Joanne. While Annie is reluctant to attend the meetings, Joanne shares her own losses with Annie and convinces her to meet up in private so Annie doesn't feel so alone. Annie tells Joanne she used to sleepwalk and recounts an incident in which she woke up in Peter's bedroom to find herself, Peter, and Charlie covered in paint thinner with a lit match in her hand. Some days later, Joanne convinces Annie that she's been taught how to perform a seance to connect with her loved ones. She then teaches Annie how to perform it to communicate with Charlie. Annie, despite her husband's evident reluctance, convinces her family to attempt the seance, using Charlie's old sketchbook as the connection point. Objects begin to move and break, terrifying Peter, and Charlie seemingly possesses Annie until Steve douses her with water. Annie suspects that Charlie's spirit has become malevolent and could harm Peter. She tries to burn Charlie's sketchbook in the fireplace, but her sleeve also begins to burn. She puts the sketchbook out and heads to Joanne's apartment for advice, but Joanne is gone, and Annie notices that Joanne's welcome mat resembles her mother's craftwork. Suspicious, Annie goes through her mother's possessions and finds a photo album linking Joanne to Ellen, and a book with information about a demon king named Pamon who wishes to inhabit the body of a male host. Joanne and a few others are linked to a cult for summoning Paimon and finding him a suitable male host. In return for doing so, various legends remark that the person who summons Paimon will be given riches and rewards. In the attic, Annie finds Ellen's decapitated body with occult symbols on the wall, written in blood. At school, Peter sees Joanne across the street, and is seemingly possessed in class and compelled to slam his head on his desk, breaking his nose and causing him to be sent home. Annie shows Steve her mother's body and the sketchbook that Charlie's ghost had drawn in. She begs him to burn the sketchbook so she can sacrifice herself to save Peter, but Steve accuses her of desecrating Ellen's grave herself, seeming to think that that is what she had been doing instead of going into the movies. Annie desperately throws the book into the fireplace herself, which causes Steve to burst into flames. As Annie screams in terror, she seems to become possessed. Peter gets out of bed and finds his father's body before a possessed Annie chases him into the attic. Despite Peter locking himself inside, Annie appears, levitating in the air and beheading herself with a piano wire, while naked coven members stand and watch. Terrified, Peter jumps out of the window, and as he lies on the ground, a mysterious light enters his body, waking him up. He follows Annie's levitating corpse into Charlie's treehouse, where Charlie's crowned, severed head rests atop a mannequin. Joanne, other coven members, and the headless corpses of his mother and grandmother bow to him. Joanne addresses him as Charlie and swears an oath to him, informing him that he is now Paimon, a king of hell. That's the movie. And, uh, and there's a lot there, dude. Uh, yep. <laughs> it's just, it's it gets crazy. And I think the, kind of like towards the end of the second act, towards the third act is kind of where it takes off. 
Um, what uh, what struck you so hard about this movie, and why a nine for you? Well, I, I guess I'll start by saying when I knew this movie was going to be a good horror movie, at least in my opinion. Okay. Um, and that's when when uh, Annie sees her mother Ellen just on the corner of her workshop, like the mm-hmm. the, ap- the quote unquote apparition, right? Yeah. And that to me, uh, it felt pretty scary, and it's because while we did see the mother you know there wasn't a lot of ambiguity there like it was the mother standing there Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of ambiguity into why she's there and also why she's just standing there completely still not doing anything and i think there's something kind of scary about that because i think people can relate to that more um because you know we've all at some point you know looked at uh I don't know, a chair with clothes on it or something. And mm-hmm. we, we see something there, like just for a split second. And it's it, it doesn't move, generally speaking. It stands still. And I think that's what can make that scary. So I think from that point is when I knew that this was going to be a good horror movie for me. <laughs> yeah, no, my... Uh, so when I saw the grandma, I saw a sinister smile on her face myself. I could tell she was malevolent in some manner. She wasn't just lingering or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, was just the sense I got off, right? And maybe that's because I just went into it with expectations. My, uh, see, and I, but I, I didn't have issue with it. I thought it was just a fine thing. I didn't think a crazy man of it. The moment, oddly enough, when I knew this, this movie was going to have a hard time, uh, at least to me, was actually when we see Charlie get decapitated. Hmm, I see. We see her get decapitated so early, and it hits you like a truck. It's so unexpected. Um, you can maybe predict it like two seconds before. Um, but and it's it cra- it's crazy. It hits the audience like a freaking truck, dude. Totally. But there was still so much of the movie left, and I have I had no idea how they were gonna top it. Um, and I worried so much for the movie because of that. And I I, I gave them the, I I wanted to give them a chance to be like, well, they can pull through with that. It's not impossible. But I think that after they, I think they peaked there is what, what, what happened to me. It, things didn't ah, get see. any crazier than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just how do you top that? It's a hard act to follow. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do think that is one of the most powerful, certainly the most shocking part of the movie. Um, I do think the movie is still able to build upon that, though. Uh and in something that I found this movie did well that I that we've seen other movies haven't done well is the nature of what is supernatural. Uh, and by that, I mean, for instance, in The Evil Dead, their supernatural base, it didn't feel very well grounded to me. It didn't feel like there was a lot there. It felt like it was come up with, you know, pretty quickly, you know, like a ruins in Samaria, blah, 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 evil dead, right? This one, it felt like there was something behind it. And even though they didn't explain all of it, right, they didn't, they didn't have to explain, they didn't have to go into details, it still felt like there was something there. There were rules that were working in the background. Um, you know, there, there were hints that were being dropped. And it kind of built up to what that supernatural thing was. 
and like Hyatt said in the Evil Dead, that allowed them to do a reveal, which for them at the end was essentially saying, hey, look, you know, now Paimon has been summoned, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the, the supernatural base. Now, of course, you also have the other avenue, which is that uh, this is a mental illness issue and not a supernatural thing at all. Uh, and they do also drop hints for that along the way as well. And I see what you talk about with that supernatural base. For me, the the supernatural was derived from this kind of um, cult, this kind of cultist process that mm-hmm. the mom Ellen had taken part in so long ago with Joan, uh, which is a fine start. It uh, I think that did it a little bit of harm for me because of how convoluted it got and mm-hmm. the issues with what they did with it became that so much of what drove the story and what drove your understanding of the story was reading it in text. We read Ellen's letter to Annie saying like, Hey, I'm sorry. I was so terrible, but it's all going to be worth it. Mm-hmm. And we read about what was it? Sir Paymon? Um, yeah, the we, we read Paymon. about, yeah, we read about him becoming, uh, like wanting a male host. We read about it over someone's shoulder. And I always Mm -hmm. think that's a really weak form of exposition and any kind of movie telling, because what happens is you just, you don't know how to explain what you want to explain in some kind of expository format. So you literally have your audience read it. And like, at that point you might as well like hand out a brochure and be like, Hey, read this. So you understand what's going on. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I, I I do not like that in a movie. That really hurts movies for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same like if uh, we have to look over someone's shoulder at like a television. And that one that one passes a little more than some of them because at least it's still like visual. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's kind of weak. And I, what they could have done was have um, Annie go to Steve about like, hey, what do you think this letter means? This is all weird. At least have some discussion over it. But I really think that hurt the story a lot because it just it hurt to have to have that exposition to understand what was going on mm-hmm. and not feel that exposition, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do understand that. Um, I will say it didn't bother me uh, because when I did feel it was better than uh, what I would consider a weaker alternative, which would be hearing the uh, Annie say it inside her own head. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's more suited for, uh, I don't know, a different kind of movie. I don't I don't think it suits itself well to horror. No. I think what you can get out of us reading the text is that it does feel a little more real to me than her reading it uh, out loud to us, essentially. Right. Like in a monologue. Oh, yeah. No, that gets um, weak as well. Arguably yeah. weaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do like it because it does sort of keep that information within her own head because we're, we're seeing from Annie's perspective in those cases. And so we know that all this information is going into her head, um, but it's not within the rest of the movie. So I think it helps keep that information localized to her. So I think, I think that's why I don't mind it so much. And but, see, I, I hear that the issue with localizing it to someone is mm-hmm. um, movies are so tricky because everything has to be external. Um, a lot of like novice writers, uh, make the one mistake. Everyone does it at some point of they write in a screenplay. Uh, John looks out the window longingly remembering what he thought about, um, Anna 
before she passed. And it's like, that works well on paper. You can write that in a novel. But when you're mm-hmm. translating that to the screen, it's a dude staring at a window looking sad. And you're just like, what? What is this? Um, and it's so what I wanted to see was, and I think they could have set it up with, let's say she reads that letter in the beginning. And then she goes to Steve and she says like, hey, my mom wrote this weird letter. Uh, it says everything will pale in comparison. What does she mean? And then from there, they can take that opportunity to have Steve already kind of treat her the way he does throughout the movie as like she's kind of crazy. She's overthinking things. He's just trying to be sensible, a little bit dismissive even. And mm-hmm. he can just be like, you know, your mom, she was crazy. We don't need to like it's nothing to worry about. Don't get into it. Don't lose sleep over it. I need to go to bed now. Something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think when it. You have to look, but the only reason they can pull it off to the extent they did is because that actress who plays Annie does an absolutely incredible job. Um, she mm-hmm. portrays that terrible, terrible grief over her daughter so well, and she hits like all the right notes with her acting to give us the feel for her character, and it is absolutely wonderfully done. So I have to give her major props on that. Yeah, I would say so as well. And I think I think you're right. Uh, like your example of, you know, so and so looks out the window longingly. Uh, you are putting so much work onto the actor to demonstrate that feeling that the, that the audience is supposed to know to, to see. Um, and it's a lot easier when you have characters interact with each other, because that gives us something to to work off of. But it does become a lot more difficult when it's just the one person. And we're supposed to uh, translate what they're feeling. Um, so, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And I think you're right. I think that it is. Um, they do it. They do it. They're, they're, they're able to execute it because Annie's actor is is able to really show us what she is feeling at all times, which which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that kind of threw me off was we kept seeing uh we kept seeing steve be the voice of reason and annie being all crazy and we kept kind of bouncing back and forth between annie actually being like crazy is she going too far with this Mm -hmm. um even if it is real is she going too far with it and like no she's kind of our only hope she's the only one that really understands she's the only one that can help and then finally to landing her just being on the bad guy when she's fully possessed um and I think that they bounced their audience between who was right and who was wrong just a few too many times. I mm. think that what I think it just kind of threw you into this weird loop of confusion, which can work well. But I think when you keep your audience there too long, you you kind of lose a bit of meaning behind your movie. And I think it uh it becomes uh, they they reference it earlier it becomes an interesting kind of tragedy where it simply is just tragedy without any kind of true meaning uh you lose your meaning within that bounce back and forth of confusion and i think i think that did it i think that harmed it as well um i thought it was interesting that they tried to root it so hard and something so real so solid um and i have to give them props for Laying down so many like Easter eggs along the way of mm-hmm. uh, that we can look back on, like um, Ellen always wanting Charlie to be a boy. And then we realize later, oh, it's so she could be the male host. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie never letting Ellen sink her claws into Charlie or sorry, not Charlie, into uh, Peter. Mm-hmm. 
because she just and that's why Alan was so distraught about Charlie not being a boy, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a really great job of laying those little hints along the way that you can go back and recollect and kind of be like, that makes so much sense now. That's why it was there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the peculiar ones in that whole series was all the writing on the wall. Do you know what any of that meant? That That is one that uh, I had a hard time figuring out because I was never able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> like it, uh, it was always a little too quick, and I couldn't quite see the writing well. <laughs> I was like failing the the capture tests. On <laughs> the one that uh, I remembered, I think it was the first one, was Satoni. S A T O N Y. Said something like that. I was like, and, uh, Satonic? What is that? And 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 that's uh, it was so close to Satan, but at the same time, it was Tony. So I was just picturing like Satan on the cover of like Frosted Flakes or something. <laughs> and it just threw me off. And I was just like, what is this? And you need to know like a whole lot about any like any of this kind of like cult stuff or you, you need to Google it like I did afterwards. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's like a necromancy ritual and stuff as all those words. Uh, they gave us no hints as to that. They That was just a that was just an untied end. Like we I, had I suppose other than the hint that they sort of dropped with the seance. And that Joanne was like, here, read this. I don't know what language it's in. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that sort of uh, alludes to these uh, this cultish uh, language. And then maybe you could then uh, ascertain from that that the writing on the wall could be related to that seance ritual, that and cult ritual. I, you know it all ties in somehow. But like mm-hmm. Satan or Satoni, whatever it is, was above Charlie's bed. Like what? It, what's his purpose there? What good is it doing there? Um who put it there? Like, what is I wanted more to be explained behind that rather than them just be left a loose end that uh, I see that 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 hurt me quite a bit. I didn't like seeing that. I thought it, w- it would have been really cool if like those were the words she ended up muttering and you could be like, oh, hey, look, she said that at the end there or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, right. Uh, what this movie also does at the same time as it's uh, sort of showing this uh, this cult, right? is there's always the possibility that it's within Annie's own head. Um, and and they, they drop hints for that throughout the entire movie, right? Uh, um, I mean, like, she goes to the the meeting and she talks about how, you know, you know her family had mental illness, you know, her mother, her, her mother had uh, DID, which is Dissociative Identity Disorder, um, and that heavily relates to how, you know, Annie used to quote unquote sleepwalk and, and do weird things when she slept. Um, and perhaps could also explain why she could become seemingly possessed. Um, and I think because they have to balance that with the actual cult, you do end up with what I think could be exhausting for some, uh, audiences, <laughs> of really trying to figure out what's going on because you're never quite supposed to know. And uh, it's interesting you point that out because a lot of supernatural has that element of like, Oh, this guy's just crazy. And Mm -hmm. plenty of uh, writers and directors choose to kind of lead your audience in that direction to an extent, almost a red herring. Um, And there's probably, there's a few movies where that actually ends up being the case where they are just crazy. And you're just like, Oh my God, that's crazy. Um, but 
what took me out of that illusion or what like didn't allow me to sink into that illusion was at the beginning, Charlie sees something and she like it's before her mom finds her and makes her go to that party, which, by the way, just terrible move on the mom's part. I don't know what what in the world is that? Um, yes, <laughs> I <laughs> was I was also quite annoyed at that. But like, but I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that right after. But Charlie sees like this weird kind of shrine or something out in the distance that clearly isn't there because her mom doesn't see it. Um, some something's burning and. Then we see Annie having all these weird encounters and we see Peter having these weird encounters. It's too many people having these strange kind of encounters and strange happenings for me mm. to think just anyone's crazy. It's a uh, it has to be something because it's a shared reality for everybody. It's not just it's not just Annie throughout it. Certainly, um, although one consideration is are is everyone reacting to something that that Annie is a reason behind, right? Sort of the the question as to like there's no question that uh Annie's mother Ellen was in the attic and decapitated mm -hmm. right like we know that that's true but the question is is that something that happened somehow supernaturally or is that something that Annie did um uh like we even we actually have what i would consider to be a clue probably not a mistake <laughs> but a clue <laughs> is that at 23 minutes and 31 seconds um when Peter breathes out of his window, like he's smoking pot, so he breathes out of his window, mm -hmm. we actually see breath outside because it's cold and you can see it. And that seems to allude that someone's outside of his window, which you could either take as a clue that there's a person out there who, you know, might be the one who puts Ellen into the attic, or you could take it as a clue that Annie is not at the support group, but she is actually doing the the grave desecration and bringing her mother into the attic. <laughs> and it very well can be either. Um, mm -hmm. But like, even if she is taking her into the attic, that's still a paranormal happening in a sense, because it's clearly not Annie herself, her intentions. It's some kind of force driving her that isn't herself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, so that, that took, that took me out of it a little bit was a, uh, I, and I didn't really have too much of an issue with that, but I did n not get to get in on that like whole mental illness drive. Um, because any issues Annie was having, I would attribute to paranormal weirdness. I see. Um, not just Annie herself. Yeah, and, and I think that that, uh, that that can detract from the movie because I guess then it, it doesn't feel as mysterious. <laughs> it, it's um, not quite as mysterious, but the, I... Throughout, I was still interested in, like, so what exactly is going to happen in the supernatural realm? And mm -hmm. I think the movie would have been a lot better off, honestly, if it just took a more classic route and had the daughter be angry with the family. Um, Charlie just being like, I was the only one that didn't do anything wrong here. Uh, why, why am I the one suffering? And then if they really wanted to make it crazy after that have it like not be her daughter that was haunting them but her mom kind of like using her daughter's spirit as a mask or something mm. um i think that would have made for a much more interesting and much more kind of just less convoluted movie uh it would because i don't think they while convoluted isn't always a terrible thing i think that we didn't get enough of just being on one side for a while to appreciate it right like we didn't get if, if you wanted to be on the side of oh well it's the pay them on uh, occult nature of everything mm -hmm. um 
then like we we needed more explanation for that sort of what you're saying yeah like we need a little more behind that to tell us what's going on other than reading some stuff before i forget i do want to talk about just how terrible everyone freaking was when it came to (laughs) charlie and why she was at that god dude like the mom bothers me so much because like i grew up in a bit of a strict household of like Mm -hmm. don't go out like it was the kind of thing of like don't go out and let your kid make the mistake in the first place when i think that just kids are going to make mistakes you just need to teach them enough to not make mistakes that aren't that they can't recover from um Mm -hmm. stuff that like is that will last forever in their lives um going out and smoking weed at a party or something that that could get them (laughs) in some trouble yeah uh but like with the the law they're not gonna die exactly um but like and the mom was already so skeptical of him going out and drinking and whatever Mm -hmm. um but and then so her solution was like, well, if I send a little girl with him, then everything will be fine. And it's like, what logic is that? Who thinks like <laughs> of just like he's going to this party where there's going to be bad things happening that I think he's too young to see. But I'm going to let him go anyways. I'm just going to punish him by also making my daughter subject to those things at a younger age. Like what? Mm-hmm. And like not just... not only that, but she's also punishing her daughter for being weird, and she's making her go, like, be social. She's oh, like, exactly. Like, she's... It's some strange... Just... That's, it just didn't make sense to me. I was like, that is the absolutely worst parenting technique I've ever seen. If she, um... Had she used it as, like, a bluff, and she's like, well, will you take uh, your sister with you? And he would have been like, but mom, I don't really want to take my sister with me. And then mm-hmm. she'd be like... Well, why is that? And like that, that would have been different because she's just trying to get to the bottom of like his real intentions there. Mm-hmm. Or and then if he had responded like, well, mom, uh, I guess I'll take her. And then she would have been like, all right, and then it's probably yeah, all right. And I'll just let you go. I won't make her go with you or anything. Well, um, you know what I'm annoyed at <laughs> the most, because that, that is really annoying um, that uh, from like a parenting perspective. Yeah. Um, what I'm even more annoyed at is that why does she why? Why do they not? make her have her EpiPen when she goes around. Like, like a nut allergy is extremely serious, mm-hmm. especially it seems like it's very serious in this case. Why does she not have, like, a little EpiPen pack? Like, it is so weird to me that, like, they're at the funeral and she's eating chocolate and they're like, oh, well, good thing it doesn't have nuts in it because we don't have the EpiPen. It's like, why not? Why don't you have yeah. the EpiPen? <laughs> like, that you're, is ridiculous, out, yeah. you're out of the house, you have a kid with a severe nut allergy and you don't have an EpiPen? And then you have her go to a party and you don't send her with an EpiPen. Like, I mean, I think that if you have a child, you know, and you've had her for 13 years and he knows she has this severe nut allergy, you're going to make sure she has her EpiPen. Yeah, like that's something you just ingrain in them. That's just it is. That was really ridiculous. Um, Yeah, so so definitely that that's that's what I felt was ridiculous. Now, um, coming off of that, though, like when they when they get out of the party and of course the decapitation happens um now i I do know that uh you do have some problem with it being somewhat of the the climax of the movie and it doesn't Mm -hmm. top it but that scene itself i think is done extremely well oh for sure like it it makes the audience uh, at least for me and i'm sure you as well like you can really feel it (laughs) like it is so shocking and uh, and this is where I have to compliment Peter 
um, or P- Peter's actor and how he's able to convey his emotion, you just feel what P- you can just tell what Peter's feeling throughout that whole scene. Like he is just in so much shock and he's like already grieving, but at the same time he's in disbelief and it's just, it's like a maelstrom of emotions just there. It's just, it's crazy that they were able to do that so well. I think it is. He does it so well. And my, and see, I really love that scene. My issue with it is that it is so well done. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not bad in and of itself, but it's just so well done that nothing can top it. And that's where my issue comes from. But it is just such a great scene. And I do agree. You 100% feel like what just happened. Like why? And you, it's the best form of shock I think I've ever seen put on a screen. Yeah. Uh, everyone talks about like it. For some reason, shock is so common in like CSI movies and whatever. Like a victim will not be talking too much. And those be like, oh, he's in shock. And I'm just like, well, I mean, you have a blanket over him and he looks startled but he doesn't look like he's in some crazy amount of shock mm-hmm. um but that that was shock like he his world yes. was like gone for a second and that was really well done yeah and you could totally tell yeah i they did it so well um because i think it is so hard to convey like you were saying and you know these true crime shows or whatever or not true crime i guess fake crime shows. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um fictional crime shows it, it is so hard to to show someone in actual like true believable grief or or believable shock because it's something that a lot of people haven't actually experienced um and even if they have like if they have experienced it they know that that's not what it looks like mm-hmm. and I, I i just think they were able to do it so well here um so yeah definitely definitely props to them in, in that scene and how well they were able to do it and um one thing i want to hop back on is we talked about the mother being so terrible in her decision making that I also want to talk about Peter's role in it because I think Peter did close to nothing wrong that night. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the two mistakes he made was one, he took his little sister to the party after all. Um, Had I been forced to go with my sister and when she was that young, I would have taken her out for like ice cream instead and said like, who even needs that party? We're going to have fun, the two of us or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just because I, I won't want her to be around that, but I, I don't hold that against him too much. He's going with, um, he's going anyways, just because he doesn't want to miss out on the opportunity, mm-hmm. which, which is not the worst thing. If he's bringing a little girl, that's a little irresponsible, but mm-hmm. what hurts me so bad is when he just leaves her to smoke pot. And I'm just like, that is, I, Maybe a lot yeah. of older siblings can relate to this and even probably younger siblings. But like that is just so stupid. Like it would mm-hmm. kill me. Like I would not be able to sleep for nights if I did that. Even if I came out and she was OK, I still wouldn't be able to sleep for nights thinking like something could have happened. I would like it would have happened because I wasn't there. Yeah. It's just and, uh, so dumb. I think it adds on to it um, because, of course, he says, go eat cake. <laughs> yeah. Like go eat chocolate cake. Um, now, we actually see this as another one of those sort of the way that this movie is able to subtly drop hints, but we actually see that um, like the teenagers in the kitchen, when they get to the party, are like chopping up nuts. Oh Um, yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. uh, So, and it's just that, I mean like that you would tell your sister with severe nut allergy to, Oh, just go eat a chocolate cake. It just seems pretty dumb to me. Again, it kind of seems like that's not something like similarly to not bringing your EpiPen 
it seems unlikely that a family with a person in there with a severe nut allergy would do something like that. Like that's so obvious. <laughs> For sure. And um on top of that, who bakes at a I've never been to a party where someone's baking. That has never <laughs> once been a thing I've <laughs> They're baking a cake, man. You know, sixteen-year-olds and their crazy parties. You know, they they don't have any drinks. They they don't drink, but they do pot and they eat cake, which I I do think makes sense, right? Like, you know, I mean, that's munchies. Fair. I think it's the munchies, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe that's that, why. I really want to go party. to a party now and just be like, I brought the goods, and then just pull out like a bunch of like cake mix and like eggs and stuff. All right, but I think speaking, that would just be great. Speaking of weed, though. Here's here's another really unrealistic part of this movie, right? So, uh-huh. <laughs> so of course you've got. I mean, is it just me or is it obvious that Peter and his friends, or at least their actors, have never ever done weed? Um, and see, I I say this because of one clue. <laughs> is it is it Peter's like whole breakdown when he's smoking? And no, it's not that. I could see that happening. Um, <laughs> you oh, okay, know, you get the. You get the grief maybe paired with the paranoia or something. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, was more just like a, a stress thing than like a weed thing. But yeah. Yeah, but no, it's instead it is in that scene before it. They pass the bong to the right. When you always, always pass weed to the left. Ah, interesting. See, I, I always sit out of weed circles and I hacky sack, so I wouldn't know this. <laughs> why why I never, is it? I never sat in them, but I do know <laughs> that that is true because of all the weed friends I have. <laughs> interesting um but yeah it's uh that's that's a really interesting thing i don't know why is that why do you pass to the left it's just so that you're consistent probably because everyone gets high and then you're like where do we pass it well I just pass it to the left like it's something you can always do uh, okay so then you never have to think about it at least that's why i would think that's why but it is it is definitely a uh a very common um i don't want to say it's not really a ritual but a very common like collective habit of I think weed weed takers, weed doers. Okay. <laughs> Those weeders over there. <laughs> weeders. <laughs> uh, um, now, I, I don't know. Well, I I was gonna say. Do you know why they in this movie um, Annie does miniatures? Because it seems like that's a really heavy theme throughout this whole movie um we even opened the movie i think with zooming in onto a miniature of the house and of um i think it's peter's bedroom and we see like peter get up when we zoom into the miniature we zoom into his room like a dollhouse do you do you have any idea why they might have done that why they had her design miniatures um and also had her do miniatures of like not only for work but also as a hobby yeah, the best reason I can think of is that it gives us insight to what's going on in her head, what she's really thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, because like so often we see like someone decapitated in their bedroom or something. Uh, we, <laughs> we see, see like that? little hints like, yeah, we do. We uh, I think Charlie's decapitated in her bedroom in the miniature. Oh, I thought you meant like in that general, kind of oh, you know, movies where people get decapitated oh. <laughs> in their bedroom. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think she it's it's a bit of self-expression for and a bit of insight into her character. Just what, mm-hmm. what's going on with her. Um, I almost feel like what happened was the writer, the director, or someone met a friend that did miniatures or saw miniatures and was like, wow, that's a long, tedious process. And they thought, what if someone went so crazy that they smashed all this? Like, I feel like it was one of those thoughts that you have as a writer of mm-hmm. like, 
that that kind of like evil thought that everybody has of just like I could just smash my fan through this right now. Like I could ruin someone's 16 hours of work just by this one simple action. And then the idea of making a character that goes crazy enough to do that. That's what it struck me as. Um that that's incredibly interesting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think about that effect. Uh I yeah, I feel like those kind of things bleed into writing quite a bit. Um overall, I didn't I didn't feel like it was too important. I thought it was interesting that she was writing those words on the wall. Uh mm-hmm. like she wrote Satoni on the wall and stuff, which awesome that like they're keeping it consistent like that but even that irks me even more that it wasn't explained in any manner Mm. um so but overall i I thought the miniatures was kind of a neat thing and it was it did make for some really great shots and stuff yeah Um, i even even feel like there might have been one scene in there where they sort of showed like a scene of the house but it was actually like a miniature or something oh that that'd be cool I, i if they did that i didn't pick up on it but Overall, I thought the miniatures were fun to look at and stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like they detracted from the movie. They added a little bit. Um, but yeah. yeah, overall, it was okay. And then the the one thing I want to talk about, the last thing that hurt me to my core at this movie was, so I'm a nut about um, horror movies are about like a sin being punished or something. Mm. Uh, people, it, things things don't just happen. It's not just a family moves into a house and they get terrorized. It's a family moves into a house and the husband doesn't listen to the wife. So therefore his family gets terrorized because of his ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always need there to be, it needs to be punishment rather than just being happenstance. Um, hmm. You know, uh, yeah, I, I know this is something that you frequently bring up uh, with, mm-hmm. uh, with every movie, right? But uh, it's interesting in this movie, of course they have a, <laughs> They bring a Pericles, yeah? Let, let, let me wait until my dog... Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, of course, in this movie, they have that that scene where the, the teacher is uh, presenting Heracles, right? Yes. And, and he's asking the class, and Peter... This is uh, in Peter's class. Um, he's asking the class, what is this hero's fatal flaw? Uh, you know, um, and, and one person, uh, Peter's crush, actually says... Uh, arrogance you know he doesn't look at any of the signs as they as they come along and more interestingly of course the teacher points out that um you know did heracles even have a choice uh because sophocles wrote the oracle so it was unconditional um and then he poses the question does this make this story more tragic or less tragic and the first student of course says oh well Less tragic because, like, it doesn't actually have an answer. Yeah. Um, and then later, once the audience is kind of focused on something else, because Peter's, like, looking at his crush or something, the other student actually answers, and she says that uh, it's more. Because if it's inevitable, the characters never had any hope. They're all pawns in this horrible, helpless machine. Mm. And I think that... And, and so I think that, well, maybe there's no sin that you can point to, Maybe that's this sort of hint that, you know, is it simply a tragic story? You I know? and see, I I think that applies to a lot of the characters. I think the one it, it, because overall, I feel like uh, it didn't violate that rule, except with our man, Steve, because mm. I think our man, Steve, was handling it the best a guy can handle it. Um, And he seemed like really ready to leave Annie if it meant protecting his son. He was being a good father about that. 
mm-hmm. kept trying to hold the like he was the only one that didn't play a part in Charlie's death in some manner. Like the mm-hmm. mom sent her to a party and the brother abandoned her at that party. Um, He was the, he wasn't around. It's like she to him one night. Uh, he goes to sleep and the next morning he wakes up and his daughter's decapitated in the car. That's all that happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so suddenly his family's in shambles. He's trying to hold it together, uh, trying to keep that family together, even though clearly the mom and son are not well off with each other. They, she blames him and he just feels overwhelming guilt and doesn't want to keep feeling that guilt because of her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it hurts my soul that Steve, like, and he even gives the wife a phone call saying like, listen, our son's, uh, he might he might have sounded a little cold about it, but he said, mm-hmm. my priority is uh, our son's safety. And like, you're kind of jeopardizing that. And it hurts so bad that he just tried so hard. He didn't really do anything wrong. And nonetheless, he just ends up spontaneously combusting because his wife throws a journal on a fire. Mm-hmm. That hurts like that. I just it makes me feel so bad for Steve just for no reason. He he didn't have any of it coming yeah no i, I think that's fair because um i mean you do have like even if you would say oh well annie didn't do anything wrong by by sending her back to the party um or at the very least that she's not at fault for her death even though she did send her to the party mm-hmm. um that there is some there is something to be said about the fact that she is doing uh rituals to try to communicate with the dead which one could consider a a sin of sorts um, you know something that you should yeah. not do uh and and with peter um you you could consider that you know he he did he messed up pretty badly there with uh you know with leaving his sister unsupervised um perhaps with driving speeding to the hospital instead of i don't know doing something else i'm not sure but you could still say that there is something there uh that he did cause undue suffering to his sister um so maybe he did he did deserve something and uh, retribution um but yeah i'd agree with with steve there's nothing that you can say for any reason why why he would deserve any of this he is simply exactly. a victim of his family situation uh and now I, I i think i do agree now that um like simply having a story where the characters just by happenstance suffer is pretty weak um but i do think that while it can be very hurtful to the soul to have a character that didn't do anything wrong suffer, um, I do think that it's... I do think... I, I don't mind it for this movie and other movies when it is because of the actions of the other characters that that innocent person suffers. Because that's sort of part of the the punishment, in a way. And, and, I, and I think I think that can work if you draw some kind of attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they tried to do that with Peter finding his father's charred corpse in the living room. Um, but it, it seemed like it was just shocking to Peter rather than a moment of sympathy for the father. And I think, uh, I think it was just another issue of something happening, happening internally with the character rather than externally. Mm. Um, yeah, I could see it. I I had actually agree with that. Um, I think it could have been more powerful if if he had like uh, kneeled over him and and cried or, or sobbed or something like showed a little more emotion there of you know why why him. I think the simple words of 
what did she do to you would have been insanely powerful there because mm-hmm. so so much earlier in the movie we see Annie talking to Joan and Joan asks what happened and Annie says my daughter was killed she doesn't yes. say my daughter died or anything she says yes. my daughter was killed like there was some fault as well there. yeah um and it just it put the blame on her son it clearly showed that there was going to be friction there and mm-hmm. that was a really that was a wonderful line it and was, I yeah. think that it would have built on that motif if he said, what did what did she do to you? Um, because, or even if he just said, how did this happen to you? And the, you let the readers, or sorry, your viewers get in on it a little bit, like kind of put that together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it showed he didn't really blame. Uh, it was just the mom that was doing the blaming. But it, I think just a little utterance of a phrase like that would have been absolutely tremendous there. And I think they missed out right there. Yeah, I, I I could see that. I think that's uh, I think that definitely would have done it better. Um, now, sort of going into this this scene, uh, this of course takes place when uh, Peter is, um, or it takes place right before Peter is chased by the the possessed Annie, uh, or at least seemingly possessed Annie. Um, certainly, she seems possessed when she latches on to the attic door and starts banging her head on it. Um, and that's that right before this. Uh, when he wakes up, Annie is like hanging on the ceiling behind him. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something I actually loved. Uh, it's sort of this form of dramatic irony where the audience sees what you're afraid of. Like they see what you should be looking at, what what the character should notice, what the character should be afraid of, and the character doesn't. And I love that in in horror. Mm-hmm. Um, because the it it scares the audience. Like it's so interesting because the audience sees it, right? There's no ambiguity there. They see what you should be afraid of, but the character doesn't. And I think that creates this tremendous amount of fear for the character. And yeah, I, I, I think, think that's it, very well done. I think it gets back into kind of the classic enjoyment of horror of don't go in that closet. There's a monster mm-hmm. in there, you know. And that's I think that's valuable in horror, even though it's yeah, something it's, we try to play with today. It's like what puts you on the edge of your seat. You're like, oh, my exactly. God, oh my God. Like, you know, is, she, is he going to turn around? Is she going to be there? Oh, my God, she's crawling around like he doesn't see it. Um, yeah, I and I think that's also that sort of classic. I, I guess you could call it a trope. Um, it's it's part of what made this movie to me feel like like, yeah, this this is a horror movie. You know, like like we've mm-hmm. seen a lot of movies that. Uh, a lot of horror movies that you know have been have been good, um, and some have been more actiony. Uh, you could say that maybe Alien was a little more actiony. Underwater was certainly more actiony, um, but this was a straight up horror movie, and and I I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think that we feel most in touch with the horror genre when it comes to paranormal stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just raw paranormal, like as above, so below was arguably paranormal some, but it also kind of felt like a bit of like an adventure yeah. Uh, as much as it did a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So when you just get into like raw paranormal, I think that does kind of put you most in touch with horror. Like you can argue vampires are great, but like any, any situation like that, it becomes a survival movie um, as well. Totally. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the movie that we've watched that you compare this most uh, that you could compare this most to in terms of how like straight horror-ish it felt is probably Paranormal Activity um, for that same sort of reason. Uh, you know, there are there are things around that maybe we should be afraid of. 
Yeah. And we are afraid of the character's safety because we think that uh, they will suffer because of these paranormal uh, activities and yeah. um, entities. Uh, although I will say that I did find this movie to be uh, scarier than Paranormal Activity, personally. I think Paranormal Activity actually scared me more because it was a lingering presence where this kind of relied on shock values some. Uh, and I think that the I can resonate with lingering presences a lot more than I do with shock values. Like a shock value is really great. And the decapitation scene was like the most shocking thing. I like, I felt like I was in shock for a second, but like that was an absolutely marvelously done scene. But I think that what resonates with me more is that kind of lingering presence. And I didn't feel like that was there so much in this movie. I see. So you're kind of missing that, like feeling that there's something there. Exactly. Um, Especially because it was very clear cut when Charlie was or like when any kind of spirit was and wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, they were doing some kind of seance. So a spirit was there. Um, he's having a nightmare. So a spirit is there. But like there was never just the question of is the spirit properly there except for maybe that tongue clicks, which was a really well done thing that tongue clicking. I, I did um, like that. Yeah. Um, it was a good thing that they introduced early a pattern and then they used later. And then I will say that. um and I think that a lot of times, like shocking things or, or jump scares, uh, can come off as as cheap in a way. Um, yeah. Because like you know that you're gonna get your audience to flinch, uh, but why? Like for what reason? Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that this movie used them to great effect, uh, and that they didn't feel cheap to me. Yeah. It felt like there was something behind the shock, something behind, um why that happens why there was a jump scare like it didn't just yeah. feel like ooga booga booga ah you know it it, it, it felt deeper than that um and I, th I think that's why i uh i i appreciated it no i i entirely agree um the like with the cut moving a cup would move and it'd be like oh my god but from there you kind of feel like so the situation is unsafe now because that cup moved um, totally so it shocks you but it puts you into a different state yeah and and um and while uh, you know, you might have had a harder time sort of having that ambiguity of is there something here or is there not? Um, they do a great job through, especially Peter and, and through his acting. Um, they're really able to sort of show, like you were just saying, that the situation is unsafe now. Uh, like even though he's in school, like there's something different. It's not like, you know, it's all fine and he could just look at his crushes, but the whole class or something mm -hmm. like he is out of it. He is worried um like there's something going on there and he he can feel something there with him uh and so i think they're still able to give you that feeling uh, even if there is not quite as much ambiguity there as you might see in paranormal activity yeah and i i think i'd agree with that um i do want to say i don't have too much more to say on the movie myself but mm. i thought that the crush served an interesting role because usually a crush on a horror movie will later come in and try to save the day. And it gives like your last survivor a reason or like some kind of like happy light at the end of the tunnel, or they'll come in and they'll, it makes everything more tragic because they come in and then they're just a victim just because mm -hmm. they entered the house at the wrong time or something. Yeah. Um, and it just speaks to kind of like the evil of that presence, but her whole role in it was just to show how, more and more disconnected Peter became because it would just make a deal that she would look back at him. He wouldn't even notice he uh, like that. His mind was just so far from any of that. And I thought that was a very interesting role for a crush to play. 
Me too. Um, and in a way, she sort of served as a red herring. Uh, you know, mm. it wasn't really, she was never going to be a part of, of this story. Um, she was sort of a red herring for both the audience and Peter. Uh, and that that wasn't really the direction that we were going to go. Yeah, 100%. Well, uh, we have our responses here, Ian. Do you have anything else you want to say before we hop into the hop into the responses or questionnaire let's see i i don't th- i don't see anything more in my notes uh that's uh to go over so yeah we could go ahead and move on uh, i just right. i do have i do see one last note i put which is that this could all be solved by better couple communication <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess i'm i guess i'm speaking uh between annie and steve especially yeah. like in in a relationship and maybe this is a lesson we can take from this there should be no reason why you have to lie to to your significant other and say that you are going to the movies when in fact you are going to deal with your mental health and get help. Yes. <laughs> um, so definitely keep an open communication. You know, I mean, uh, if you're in a good relationship, a supportive relationship, you should be able to go to your your uh, your other half and um, and get support there. So uh, otherwise, you, you're probably um, need need to rethink uh where you can get support from if not your second your significant other so uh, th- there's something there i just figured i'd throw in there better communication that's what you need <laughs> yeah i i yeah i think to an extent communication would help uh and it was definitely a lack i think that annie just being so paranormally driven just kind of put a barrier in that so i never felt like because i think a lot of movies it does feel like well if you guys talked this wouldn't be happening but i do feel like yeah had they, it, that that wasn't exactly an option just it, it because is, of the background forces you're right it is a little different here um but you could still view as steve was her anchor to the real world mm-hmm. and she was she never even gave it a chance she she started severing the tie herself uh before he even really had a chance to try to help her yeah um, so there you go but yeah uh yeah it. anyway uh survey time what do we got yeah um well, so we went over their score. It ended up being a 9.3. Uh, probably the highest score we've had from our audience. And then, yeah, they go on a... So we asked how scary the movie was for them. The lowest we had was a 3, and we did have a 10. Um, I can try to find the average here right quick, but uh, for the most part, it was in the higher range, like 8s, 9s, and 10s. We had a 3, 5, and a 6. Mm-hmm. But it was... a. Uh, overall, I think people were rather unsettled by it. Uh, especially more than our past movies. Like usually there's at least like two, three people that like really didn't feel much from it. It was just one person this time. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised. I gotta say for this movie. Um, I think that, I think that out of all the horror movies we've watched so far, and hopefully we can get some more scary ones in here as well. Um, this is definitely one of the scarier ones. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. So let me, uh, so we have our paths of fear question here. We have getting suddenly decapitated while hanging out of a car. The uncertainty, chaos, and unrest that comes after a tragic and sudden death. Knowing for certain that something is true, but having those you hold closest distrust you and even find you crazy. And being haunted and harmed by a vengeful spirit. Uh, which which do you uh, think hit our audience the most and least? Let's get both guesses. Most and least. Okay. Um, I kind of want to say for the most that it's like... When you know something is true, but you're, uh, you know, someone that you really hold close doesn't believe you. I find mm-hmm. that to be quite scary. Um, and then the least 
let's see, we got decapitation, the we got decapitation, the aftermath of a sudden death, and the vengeful spirit. Maybe aftermath of sudden death is um, least scary. So, what we had was your two guesses tied for the top two. Ah. Um, then there was a little bit of being haunted and harmed by a vengeful spirit. And no one said that it was suddenly getting decapitated while hanging out of a car. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's good to see. I think that uh, while the decapitation is the most sudden and like it is terrifying, like on its surface, uh, these other options are certainly more terrifying in in their depth. So I, yeah. I guess I yeah that that makes sense to me. I I think we could have probably gone better with that one and said like just like just something going so terribly wrong in a mundane thing like driving a car i think yeah that would have, that would have been a more resonating option yeah I, th- I think so i think that this one was a little too straight cut uh no pun intended yeah <laughs> damien okay i see <laughs> making decapitation puns now get your head out of that world Ian. all right uh so you did the um you did the whole long question this time. What'd you ask? So I asked, you see your parent sink deeper and deeper into madness after a tragic incident. It starts with uncontrollable wailing to strange bouts of anger to strange ideas and beliefs. From there, things only get worse with delusions of grandeur to harmful behavior. And finally, just complete detachment from reality. At what point do you take real action and what action do you take? That's a really good question. Um, I asked this because throughout the whole movie... The mom is just being absolutely terrible to the son, just like 90% of the time. Mm. And there are so many things that she said that I would have just been like, I don't want to live here anymore. And like, I would have just run away had I been a teenager living with him. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, it, I, this ended up being a dream, so he didn't get a chance to react. But she said, like, I never wanted to have you as a son. And I was just like, wow. Like, at that point, I'm not staying in a household like that. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Um. Like, I would have just bailed. Um, So I think when it gets to probably that kind of harmful behavior, but I think I would have started taking real action at, like, the delusions of grandeur, um, maybe at strange ideas. Just when I started seeing that they weren't quite uh, anchored in reality anymore is when I would have started trying to get them help. And then, like, I would have gone further when they started taking harmful behavior. Um. Uh, maybe towards themselves, I would have just tried to harder to get them help. But if like they started taking harmful behavior towards me to like just unbelievable extents, that's when I'm out. That's when I just yeah. I I will say difficulty in this question is of course um heavy relate it heavily relates to how old you are, uh, which also um especially at least in the United States uh, controls how much control you have uh, Mm. with your parents. so yeah, I, I think it could be very quite difficult. I I know that it, you know it could be quite difficult to sort of get help from parents until they like are physically abusive. Um, so it could be problematic as to how you want to get your parents' help and also get yourself out of a dangerous situation when your parents are being uh, delusional in a, yeah. in a harmful way. Hundred percent. Yeah, and it's it, it is a tricky situation to navigate. And it's very case by case. I feel like. Yeah, certainly. so I wanted to leave it a little open ended for them to kind of fill in their own blanks. Um, our first response was when they start harmful behavior, I try and get them into a hospital. Uh, I think that's one hundred percent reasonable. Uh, takes take action once it goes outside the normal bounds of grief and try to talk and suggest counseling. Then distance myself if they refuse. 
That's an interesting one. I, I like that one. That's well balanced. It, it is well balanced, but it's a parent, and it's hard to distance yourself from a parent that you're living with. You know, like well, in certainly. your teens when you're when you rely on them, it mm-hmm. is that is a difficult time to distance. It's, you can distance emotionally, but it's still difficult. I think it's also for a lot of kids, right? It's incredibly unnatural, uh, at least to become well into your adulthood, uh, and maybe maybe even then to console your parents like that like to try to um like when you're the rational one and they're not uh Mm -hmm. like i can't imagine how difficult that would be in sort of trying to talk uh try to talk to them and get them to change their uh behavior to get help like that seems incredibly difficult to do and unnatural yeah exactly um all right so our next one as soon as the accident occurs if it's anything like the movie we need to go to therapy immediately they start getting seemingly crazy like annie did i'm leaving the house and taking them to the hospital i'd say that's fair i like that as soon as the accident occurs your mind goes to therapy because that like honestly no matter how tough you are that is something that'll fuck you up (laughs) yeah that's so disturbing that like you really should just be seeking help immediately even if you don't see signs in yourself right like right then like it's something that'll mess you up whether you are tough or not certainly um the the next person says very soon with some of that go to therapy action that's fair that's it's another one mm-hmm. we have probably try to get them a therapist when i start seeing delusions of grandeur if they are blaming me though i'd probably fall so deep into a depressive spiral that i would be essentially catatonic i i feel that because like during the beginning when the brother was just so numb to the world and the mom was clearly holding this against him so much. I I would have just felt like dying myself. Like that is and that is like some of the lowest of lows, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I like that you acknowledge that that probably would send you into a depressive spiral because I think it would do the same to just about anybody. Yeah, again, it's it's such a difficult situation to to navigate when the people who you're generally used to being the the rational ones or at least the authorities are no longer and Mm -hmm. i mean what do you do by that point (laughs) yeah it gets it gets hard um so we have i would interfere once i believe that they're going to hurt themselves or others i try to get them psychological help um i think that's yeah that's fair when you see actual harm happening is Mm -hmm. definitely when you start taking action um i think that like and depending on past experiences and stuff and depending just on dynamics of families it would be uh, whether or not you do it sooner or in like how long you let that harm continue before you see it as a real issue. Like, uh, mm-hmm. like it's, uh, it, I think a lot of people would stop at like delusions of grandeur and stuff because that's when they see things are still spiraling downhill. But some people um, let that harm go unnoticed for a bit and think like it's just going to stop. Uh, when oftentimes it doesn't, but I guess maybe there's probably a few cases where it does. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the next is also this wasn't listed as a scary aspect to the movie, but I think the scariest thing would be being a situation where you feel at fault for the death of a loved one. So I actually it's so interesting that they said that I originally had that on the Pass of Fear, but I thought that that was so it so easily outshined every single other one. How could anyone say anything else other than that? So the reason I did not include that is because I felt that um there won't be it won't reveal much uh because i think that the majority of people would look at that and say well of course um of course i would be afraid 
uh, if I caused undue harm to a loved one, like especially sudden death. I mean, how can you not? That is, yeah, I think that's hundred percent fair. That that would have just outshined any. I hundred percent agree. Yeah. So so um, good good point. Uh, I did have it there. I removed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's where the movie really shined was expressing that kind of grief and this just terrible time after Charlie's death. I think that's where the movie really stands out as uh, just as a movie. I didn't care for it as a horror movie, but I think that like that whole sequence was just so brilliantly played out. Yeah, the, they were able to convey uh, very powerful emotions extremely mm-hmm. realistically. Um, so our last one is interesting. I would follow them into madness, unaware of the danger until reality slips from my own tenuous grasp. It's hereditary after all. I love that. Uh, I mean, I think plenty of us would just go kind of nuts with the parent after something like this. Um, you know, I'd actually, <laughs> I, w- I want to read this one in like a, in like a deep, like uh, uh, maybe HP Lovecraftian way. Oh, okay, let, let me give it a shot. I would follow them into madness, unaware of the danger until reality slips from my own tenuous grasp. It's hereditary, after all. I like, I like it. That's a, that's a line that belongs in Lovecraft, for sure. Um, <laughs> that's a great answer. I like that. Very well written. Uh, so that's, that's all we got for the survey. Uh, any last words you have, Ian? Uh, well, um, you know, I will say like, uh, so I guess just to conclude, like the reason I love this horror movie is I think it uses the classic elements of horror to great effects. I thought that the movie was scary, which I think is, I, I find to be pretty rare. Um, you're not like keeping me up at night scary, but still scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, there were moments where I was on the edge of my seat moments where, uh, you know, like, of course that incredibly shocking scene. I, I myself felt like some shock factor there. Um, I think it was just able to do this thing so well that, you know, again, I got to give it really high score for that just because, um, it was so enjoyable and, and so horror ish. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Overall, um, I didn't care as much for the movie as seemingly anyone else did, but I think it's still definitely worth a watch because it does have a lot of wonderful elements to it and it does convey that grief just so unimaginably well. Yeah. So there well, you go. Um, on that bombshell, it's <laughs> it's time to end. Um, yeah. You can uh, catch us on Twitch. Uh, we try to stream every Wednesday and every Saturday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Of course, we uh, watch our horror movies on Discord every Friday at 7 p.m. Uh, we generally vote for those on Thursday. Marsh, would you like to tell them uh, how, how they can participate? Oh, yeah, there's a link down there. Just click that. In the description of the Spotify, there's a link. And yeah, hop in that and we'll give a little announcements every Friday night of when we're getting into it. And it's just a great time. Uh, there's a lot of lovely people in our chat that have some really interesting input on the movie. And it can definitely amplify a movie to see all the different reactions of it that a wide variety of people have. Totally. So yeah, if you are, uh, as we are, a horror movie lover, uh, I think you'll appreciate the community. Uh, so hop on over. Yeah. Farewell. That's the end of us. Yeah. Thanks for listening.